Welcome to the Millionaire Mindcast, where we broadcast weekly interviews with millionaire minds from across the globe to empower you on your journey of unlocking a rich and fulfilling life. It's time to unleash your millionaire within. Now, here's your host, Maddie A. What's going on, guys? Welcome into today's episode. I'm excited for you to listen to my friend, John Warlow. He is the author of Built to Sell and many other amazing resources and books and information around businesses that are truly set up and built to sell. If you're somebody that is an entrepreneur, a business owner, you want to set up your company in a way that you can, if you want to, sell it for the most amount of money possible, there is a formula to doing this. And this is what John, one, after selling and having a very successful exit of his own company, learned. But then he went on to be a student and become an expert in how large companies are ultimately setting themselves up internally and externally to go out on the marketplace and capture the most possible value for what it is that they do and how they're set up. And obviously, right, there are certain strategies and ways that if you're a business owner, if you're one already existing and already operating and you're maybe thinking of selling or maybe you don't want to sell, but you want to put your business in a position to be able to extract the most value out of it, whether that is time for you, whether that is positioning yourself to create more leverage in the business by getting loans or you know lines of credit because of how you're set up properly, or if you are somebody that's just starting out and you want to know what is the proper foundation to start with, this is going to be an amazing episode for you guys. I got so much value out of it. I'm looking at a ton of notes here that I took myself, and we talked a lot about various stages of how to structure your business, you know, and really one of the things that really caught me by surprise was this idea of revenue and growing revenue not always being the most important thing that creates the most value in your business. And John shares why. He also talked about how the business landscape has changed uh, since COVID and where there are many big opportunities for businesses to be bought or acquired or also the opportunity to sell and exit some of your businesses. But there's a plan and there's a, a way of going about doing this. And he really gives some great insights on that. We talked about the three ways to value your business, the difference between unsellable and sellable companies. One of the things that was most interesting to me was the three types of business owner profiles. Um, I think you guys are really gonna like his explanation of the Mastercraft, the Freedom Fighter, and the mountain climber. And I'm curious to know which one you think you are. Shoot me a text at 844-447-1555 or text um, or, or tag John and I on social media after listening to this episode. Um, but it was really cool to hear almost like, yeah, that's me and kind of giving you permission to be that person, right? And that how that ties into your business. We also talked about the mindset around timeline and really of all the businesses that he's seen and all the people that I've interviewed that are successful and had major successful business exits, what that average timeline looks like. And that might give you a little bit more permission or at least insight on how long you might need to commit to what you're gonna be building and what business you want to be a part of. He talked about diversification at certain stages of your business, um, what he would say to himself when he was back in his 20s you know, starting to build his own business versus where he's at in his 50s. Uh, we talked about some really cool trends moving forward. Overall, I think it was really, really, really insightful as a business owner. And even if you're not a business owner and you want to start a business, or if you're somebody that's working within a business, the value that these insights can bring. So with that being said, I don't want to waste any more time by digging into today's great interview with John Warlow right after this quick message from today's show sponsor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer 
and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like build and bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this deep sales and LinkedIn has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn sales navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn sales navigator and get a 60 day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. Well, I'm excited to welcome into the show, John Warlow. How are we doing, brother? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm great, man. Any, any day I get to uh, talk with a high-level business mind around the vehicle of business and how it can be used to you know, fund lifestyle and make impact, create wealth, uh, is, is always a good day, at least in my book. So I'm excited for our conversation today. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to get a ton of value out of either one, if they're in a business and how they can apply some of these strategies and you know techniques and, and mindset to the ecosystem they're playing in or for the entrepreneurs, the business owners right now that maybe aren't thinking about some of these things and how that can really transform their business. And whether they want to sell or not, give them that option to create the most value and extract the most impact out of that vehicle. And I know you're going to share a lot about that, but I'd love for our listeners to know a little bit more about your journey and you know how you got into the game of building and, and executing and selling you know businesses. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I guess it goes back about 20 years ago now. I, I used to run a quantitative market research business. So we we had a lot of oh, very large... What's that? You were a quant. A quant, yeah. We had big clients, uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you know, Dell was a customer, Apple was a customer. We we helped them uh, market to SMB, small medium businesses. And I got to thinking I'd like to sell the company. And and we built it up. It was a, a services business. I was sort of thinking revenue was our main objective to make it more valuable. And we had about five or six million in revenue. 25 employees, but but profitable, 20, 30% profit margins each year. So it was a good business. So I thought, man, this is going to be great. Someone's going to want to buy my client list, all these blue chip customers. So I go to see a uh, an M&A guy, a guy named Perry Miele, mergers and acquisitions professional in Toronto. And I said, what do you think it's worth? And I was going to rub it in my hands together, expecting him to come up with some you know huge number. And he said, well, actually, before I answer that, let me ask you a couple of questions. I said, shoot. And he said, all right. So like, who does the research? And I'm like, well, I'm I'm involved in the research. It's like Bank of America. Of course, I've got to be involved. He's like, all right. Well, who does the selling? I'm like, okay, I gotta <laughs> I gotta go see Bank of. It's like I can't send somebody else. And he says, well, that's 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 fine, John, but I can't sell your company. It's worthless. And I'm and I'm like, but but Perry, like, we've got 20, 30 percent profit margins. We got all these clients and the revenue and the product. It's like none of that matters if if. If your business is dependent on you, I can't sell it. And it it was like hitting being hit between the eyes when it kind of landed on me. But it it uh, it triggered a sequence of sort of me learning about what does drive the value of a company and what do acquirers want. Ultimately, that a company you know, with Perry's help and others, we kind of transitioned the business to a subscription model. Ultimately, we sold it to a New York Stock Exchange listed company. It was a successful exit, and you know, ha- you know, happy to get into that. But the the kind of main moral of the story was that that's what triggered me to kind of learn about you know what does drive the value of a company because if it's not revenue and it's not client list, well, what is it? And that's kind of what we spent our time on. Well, let's talk about that. If it's not revenue and it's not the client list, right? Which those, yeah, those obviously are important pieces, or at least you know that's what I think a lot of people believe. Um, are at least variables in the equation of a successful business. But from your perspective, what is it? Yeah, look, I think 
you know, when you think about the value of a company, I'm going to distill a very complicated science down to some basic tenets. One is that it's usually a multiple of your profit, right? So typical business we work with would start with us at around three and a half times pre-tax profit. And most people myopically focus on the profit. Okay, I've got to get my profit up in order to make my business more valuable. The actual secret is to focus on the multiple because you can take the same company and it's in many cases much harder to grow the profit, but it can be much easier to grow the multiple. And the multiple is determined by different things other than uh, the ones we always think about. One of the biggest drivers of your multiple is going to be recurring revenue, right? So you're in the hotel space, you've got recurring revenue, right? If you've got uh, regular tenants in any sort of uh, real estate play, you've got recurring revenue. Uh, software companies have recurring revenue. I even heard of an example. You're the, uh, are you a guitar player? I'm not. I wish I was. Okay. No, I, my, my son <laughs> plays guitar, so I kind of I know a little bit about it. But um, Fender has come out with a cool subscription offering, right? So you want to learn how to play, play guitar? Guess what? You could subscribe to Fender. Now, what does that do? Number one, it gives Fender a new recurring revenue stream, but they're into selling like hundreds, thousand dollar guitars. So you think, but like, why would they care about 10, 20 bucks a month? Not only does it give you recurring revenue, it also makes that subscriber way more likely to buy another Fender guitar. And it makes the company more valuable, like kind of two, three, four times more valuable in some cases, depending on the industry. So one of the eight drivers is going to be how much recurring revenue you have. And it has nothing to do with your profitability. It has everything to do with how uh, sustainable your company is over time. Recurring revenue being a key piece, right? And I think that's obviously something that um, you know a lot of businesses struggle with, right? It's these feast or famine type of seasons based on whether you're a service or a product or really whatever it may be. And so I'd love to kind of, how do you guys audit whether, you know, whether this is a company that's already existing, they're already in place, you know, how do they audit the overall health or um, value of, let's just say their ability to be a sellable company and maybe to tail off of that a little bit as well as, you know, what are some of the variables that business owners or entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting a business should start pouring their foundation with from day one? Yeah, 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 for sure. So yeah, look, I mean, that's what we do. We assess companies. Valuable to questionnaire includes 30 to 32 different questions. And we spit out a result uh, that gives you a score in eight dimensions. Probably the first step, though, is is thinking through your monopoly control. And this is one of the other key drivers. So, you know, Warren Buffett talks about he invests in companies with a deep and wide competitive moat, right? Competitive differentiation. Why? Because it gives you pricing authority, more pricing authority, better margins, better margins. You get more money to invest in sales and marketing. And you kind of thicken and widen that competitive moat. And so that's what, in many cases, makes a company irresistible to acquirers. And it's not for some sort of fanciful, fanciful reason, when an acquirer makes a decision to buy a business, they go in a boardroom, they close the door, and they decide, do we want to compete head-on with this business or do we want to buy the company? And, and, and if you've got something really unique and different that it would take that acquirer years to build or you know, many millions of dollars to create, they're going to make the conclusion that it's better just to buy these guys. Whereas if you fall into the trap that so many of us fall into, which is chasing revenue, uh, because you know you get on the Inc. 5000 list, or you, you know you get recognized because you've got a big company, more employees, revenue. The challenge with that is every additional product you sell makes you less and less attractive to an acquirer. I'll give you an example because I think I think it helps bring it home. I interviewed a a woman uh, named Stephanie Breedlove on Built to Sell Radio. She started a company in the payroll space. They did. Uh, have you ever interviewed Stephanie? Do you know? Do you know her? No, I don't know Stephanie, but I got a couple good good friends in the payroll space, so I'm okay. sure they know of her. Yeah, they probably do. It's a, it's a cool industry. Talk about recurring revenue, right? You got right. payroll. So she carves out this unique niche. She has kids. She hires a nanny. She's trying to pay the nanny legitimately, and the IRS makes her go through all these hoops to jump through all these hoops to to kind of do the paperwork. And she says, hold on a second, maybe there's a play here where I can set up a payroll company just for parents who have a nanny to pay. Because like all the big payroll providers, they don't want to deal with like one person. But right. So that's what she did. She built a payroll company for just parents who have a nanny to pay. 
So she gets this business off the ground. She gets, to, she talks to all her friends and mom groups and, you know, she gets a few customers and she's at 300 grand in revenue. This is a small, small company. It's just Stephanie and one employee. And she's starting to slow down her growth, right? And, and because she's sort of worn out all of her contacts and, and immediate contacts and so forth. And so she thinks, okay, how, how else can I grow this thing? And, and she goes and goes to all the conferences. She's reading all the books and they're all saying, oh, it's like eight times cheaper and faster to cross-sell a second product to your existing customers, right? And so she's like, well, what else could I sell? You know, these busy parents, like maybe, you know, lawn care services, like meal delivery, like all these other crazy ideas that have nothing to do with what she says. And then she talks to an advisor who says, you know what, Stephanie, think about it from the perspective of the value of your company. Every additional service you offer is going to dilute your unique point of differentiation in the marketplace, making you less attractive to an acquirer. It may make you in the short term bigger, more profitable, but in the long term, it's going to undermine the value of your company. And so she she hears this message and she says, okay, I, I'm going to do the hard thing, which is to slow more, grow more slowly and go find more parents of a nanny to pay. Over 25 years, she, kept, she builds this company. This is not Tesla. This is not like some rocket ship. This is 25 years. And she gets to 10,000 customers, 9 million in revenue. And she decides she wants to sell it. She goes, looks around, says, Well, who would want to buy this company that just does payroll for parents of an Annie to pay? Care.com is the obvious suitor, right? Care.com, if you don't know, it's it makes Andy a lot of Flint. sense. Right. So you, do you have kids? I got two daughters. Yeah. Okay. So you know that you know the, the drill, right? You plug in your zip code and it gives you five-star rated babysitters, nannies in your local market. Yeah. They have 7 million subscribers. Okay. So 1% of CARES customers buy Breedlove's payroll service. That's 70,000 customers. Breedlove's a $9 million business on the back of 10,000 customers. Long story short, typical service business might trade, if they're lucky, at one time's revenue. She's at 9 million. She sells for $54 million. Go Stephanie. It would never have happened had she diluted her point of differentiation by chasing revenue, by cross-selling a bunch of other ancillary services. Mm. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we make as entrepreneurs is we're, we're chasing the wrong goals. We're like, okay, I want to get on the Inc. 5,000. Therefore, I got to sell more revenue and I got to go cross-sell my existing customers. And we start selling lots of things to a few customers. And that's like the definition of an unsellable company. The, the inverse is what you want. You want to sell a few things to lots of people. And that sounds like I just said the same thing in a different way. I actually said the exact opposite, right? So most small businesses grow up selling lots of things to just a few customers. Can't sell that business. Very hard to sell that business. The inverse though is finding one or two things you can actually get a moat around a competitive point of differentiation and go sell lots of, go find lots of people who want to buy that product. Because the more you differentiate it, the harder it is going to be to compete with you, the more it makes sense for an acquirer to come in and just say, you know what, we're going to buy this business. Could, could Care.com have created what Breedlove created? Probably with enough time, enough money. Sure. But man, Breedlove had a 25-year head start. Yeah. And Care had a, you know, an agenda. They wanted to move fast. And so, uh, so anyways, monopoly control, finding one thing that you can absolutely own and then just doubling down on that is one of the other main ways you can, you can really boost the value of your company. I love that. Because I think, obviously, right, as an entrepreneur, one of the you know, biggest curses are... Um, I remember when I was you know, early in my entrepreneurial journey, and I was 22, and one of my, my, my first mentors you know, kind of said, hey, when, you, when you're talented, um, it's very easy to know that you can do a lot of things good. Yeah. But it's really hard to have enough discipline to do a few things amazing, world-class, right? And so I love that you, you talk about that because as a business, sometimes we do get distracted by top-line revenue growth. For sure. But ultimately, that doesn't equal profitability at the end of the day or specialization within a certain niche which can create more value, more scarcity, more demand around your particular brand, service, product, or, or business as a whole. So I love that you brought that up. You also talked a little bit about um, value, the valuing process, right? 1x, 2x, 5x, yeah, yeah. 10x. Yeah. 
Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that. And, and is that something that people should be factoring into their business plan and their model, helping them understand based on, you know, what drivers of value are in their particular industry or space and how that might tie into their business plan and what executions they do or don't do? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big believer in thinking about who the ultimate acquirer is likely to be and then looking at making decisions through the lens of that uh, you know, that portal. I remember I interviewed uh, a guy uh, that started a company called Daikai and it was a video game maker. Video game maker uh, that had a, a, a unique way that they interfaced and, and it, I won't go into all the details of the company, but it was a, it was a cool company. But he named it Gaikai. And I was like, why on earth did you name it this weird name? It's like G-A-I, K-A-I. Like it made no sense. And he named all his servers all after all these Japanese um, kind of mantras and, 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 and phrases and colloquialisms. And I'm like, what is with that? He's an American guy based in California. And I'm like, actually, he's originally Irish. David Perry is his name. Uh, but he was based in California. So I'm like, what's that with that? And he's like, I knew Sony would be the most likely acquirer for my company. And so I wanted to name it something that would sound Japanese. I'm like, you did that from the day, like before you even started the company, you named the company, like, because you were thinking about Sony as the potential acquirer. It's like, yeah, that's what you have to do if you want to build a value company. And I was just blown away by that. But that's the kind of thing that you do. So to answer your question, valuation, like how do companies value your business? There's sort of three traditional ways. Book value is how you might value a piece of residential real estate, right? Uh, it's the cost of the actual asset itself, right? What most people want to do in a business is they want to get goodwill, which is the additional value above the asset value the book value the uh, is is the definition of goodwill so that means uh you're you're trying to maximize goodwill as an entrepreneur and so you know there's there's two ways to do that or two valuation techniques one is comparables so looking at uh, you know a SaaS company hey this SaaS company of this size growing at this rate trades at this multiple of revenue we should trade at a similar re uh, revenue. So looking at other companies in your industry. And then the third way uh, is what's called discounted cash flow, which is essentially taking your profits and discounting them back, projecting them out of the future, and then saying, what's the time value of money represent? It's a fairly complicated DCF calculation. You can Google it later. But effectively, I think what, what your listeners should take away, I think, if they want to understand valuation, is, is you've got sort of two big levers. Um, when it comes to a financial buyer, I should back up. There's strategic buyers who are like like care buying Breedlove's company. That's a strategic acquisition where they have some strategic assets. Financial buyers are buying your future stream of profit. And most deals are not the spectacular Stephanie Breedlove acquisition. Most of them are financial buyers, right? They're buying a future stream of profit. And so the way you drive that up and down is by making your future stream of profit more impressive i.e. more profits in the future right. and making them more reliable. So the more reliable through things like recurring revenue, you're going you're gonna to see that your valuation goes up. So those are the two drivers that are going to be important to a financial buyer. I love that you, you know, started with this begin with the end in mind, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, skate to where you think the puck is going to be at and, and work backwards from there because that's really going to help you, one with that clarity, kind of create the best roadmap and stepping stones, or at least what breadcrumbs you might want to be following along the path to, you know, the, the end destination, so to speak. One of the things that I always, um, you know, share with people, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this yeah. is, is there a perfect business model? And when, when I say that is, I think the perfect business model is based on what the particular business owner is trying to get out of the business. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on that? Right. Cause I, I often hear like, well, this person is doing that and that is dropping more profitability, let's say to the bottom line and maybe their company is more valuable, but that person's working hundred hours a week. They don't see their family. They don't have the best lifestyle. Their health is, you know, suffering because of it, but their business is thriving. And then you might have somebody who's maybe half the amount of revenue um, or profitability, but they've got this balance and this happiness and fulfillment. And they're you know not essentially bankrupt in other areas of their life, even though maybe their business isn't as big. What are your thoughts around like business models suiting people for their lifestyle and not necessarily for sale? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, we've done a bunch of research at Value Builder and we, we, we've distilled the typical psychographic makeup. In other words, we study motivations, like why people start a business as opposed to going to work for Procter & Gamble or whatever. And we've distilled it down to three psychographic profiles and we call them craftspeople, mountain climbers, and freedom fighters. And one of the things I just encourage people to think about even before you start a business, certainly on your journey, is to think about which of these profiles you most closely represent, because that can also inform the business model you're going to be best served to use. So a craftsperson is motivated by mastery. So they love being acknowledged for what it is they do. They're the incredible massage therapist, right? Who you would never you know, go a week without seeing. They're the amazing copywriter, the photographer, the carpenter, the plumber, who just is a master of their craft, right? But they're not an entrepreneur. They don't identify as an entrepreneur. IRS calls them an entrepreneur. They have to file a business tax return, but they're not. They don't think of themselves that way, right? They have a, a mastery of a craft, uh, they typically don't have employees, they, they, and they're going to be really happy doing the work. You know, Michael Gerber, famous uh, e-myth guy, talks about working in, not in, uh, on a business, uh, on, not in a business. In, in the case of craftspeople, they're going to ha- be happiest working in the business. They're not going to be building a very successful company that you could sell that's going to be on the cover of Inc. Magazine, but they will be happy doing the work. The second group, uh, I'll actually talk about freedom fighters second because uh, they're, they're generally a little closer to craftspeople. They're motivated by independence. And so for, crowd, for a freedom fighter, their highest aspiration is total and utter financial independence. They want to choose to work, not to be told to work, not have to work. That doesn't mean they don't want to work or not have a business or job, or you know, but they want to know they could decide not to work. And so for them, that's going to, for them, they can't stand being controlled, right? So you've heard of entrepreneurs being control freaks. You've, I'm sure, heard that sort of, that uh, old adage. Freedom fighters are your control freaks, right? They don't want to be told what to do. And as a result, they don't want investors. They don't want outside advisors. They don't want a big line of credit with a bank that they have to send monthly reports to because all those things serve to undermine their independence, their sense of pure personal freedom. Makes so sense. again, if I was if I was coaching a freedom fighter and they were saying, hey, I'm thinking of, you know, rate, I'm syndicating a bunch of debt over here because we're going to raise this big, you know, I'd be like, hold on, time out a second. Like everything I know about who you are as a person, you value freedom over everything else. Do you really want a bunch of nosy investors asking you for, you know, your statements each month? And, right. and not to say investors are nosy, but you know what I mean? Like people- yeah. There's a, there's a different money. level of accountability, right? That's required. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the third group are mountain climbers. Mountain climbers are motivated by to grow and achieve. They are motivated to grow the next big company. You've got three apartment, three uh, hotels on the go. And if I had to guess, I might I might think you're a, a mountain climber, right? For you, you want to make a big dent in the world. You want to have a big impact. You want to achieve something really special and have an impact. And, and for, for those types of people, they're motivated by achievement. Right, so you like to win and compete, and 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 so for you, uh, you know, having a lifestyle business is probably going to be boring. It's going to be probably frustrating if you keep getting sucked into being asked to do the work. Right, you're like, I don't, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to be doing the work. Right, I want to be building, creating. Yeah, right, right, and that's a mountain climber attitude. And so for those types of businesses, they're going to be best served with fast growth scalable, oftentimes tech-enabled or technology-enabled businesses where you can get that big impact. Uh, so those are the three psychographics. And then hopefully some, some ideas around kind of the perfect business model. I, I, to your point, I don't think there's a perfect business right. model. But there probably is some, some better business models based on just some self-reflection on who you are as a person. I love that. And I think it's a good reflection point for people to, you know kind of look in the mirror and at least identify which one might make the most sense for you and your goals or what resonates with your personality and how you like to run and operate and what you want to build. Because obviously, understanding kind of what that role looks like for you, right, helps you understand how to best lead and drive or at least create in your business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it, it can avoid... You know, once somebody invests in your company, 
your company is for sale, right? That's, there's an old adage that like you have to like you have to get those investors a return on their money, right? So yep. you take outside money, even if it's just a few hundred grand from friends and family, or you know, a few thousand dollars from friends and family. All of a sudden, you flipped a switch and a, and a clock starts counting down, right? Yep. Those investors, whether they're friends, family, or institutional investors, they want a return. And the only way you're going to give them a return is to sell your company. And if you don't want that pressure, you shouldn't bring on investors. And that's, again, one of the things that I think we have to learn as early as possible because it can it can really inform the business model you use uh, based on sort of your own headspace. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. Now, I know a lot of different operating systems exist for, you know, businesses, um, you know, EOS, E-Myth, right? You can talk about all sure. different types of them. Um, what, are, what are some of the best frameworks that you've seen of the many businesses that you guys have seen, studied, been a part of, exited? You know, what, what are some of those good business frameworks? And maybe it doesn't have to be necessarily a title of one specific one, but maybe some common denominators or, or threads that have been seen present in very successful businesses that are built to sell. Yeah. So, so one of the common themes, I think, actually, to set it up, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a very specific example of, of what I'm referring to, but let me just set it up with a, a quick story, an analogy of sorts. So you're a parent. Um, if you don't mind me asking, how old are your kids? Ella's uh, seven and Evelyn's four, four and a half. Okay. Do you, do you have sort of lofty, you know, do you want them to go to Harvard and, and, and be, you know, the next CEO of some massive company or what, what are your aspirations for your kids? No, honestly, and maybe this is not what, you know, a lot of maybe entrepreneurial or business minded people want for their children. But honestly, man, I, uh, I, I just want my kids to be one, you know, mentally and emotionally intelligent. Um, and apply their skills and their passions where they feel, um, you know, the most excited and happy. So, awesome. and, and that'll translate into, in my opinion, you know, some level of I, I'm, I'm implanting the seeds of wealth and you know financial literacy and those types of things. So, um, more so, it's about you know wherever that takes them, whether it's YouTube or you know to Harvard. I don't really care. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, you look. I think I, I'm the same, by the way. I, and I think a lot of parents would say, if my kid can kind of go out in the world when they're 18 or 19 or 20 or whatever, and are happy, independent, yep. can you know live on their own and, and yeah. just sort of, sort of doing what they love, whether that's you know, you know, building a huge business or playing the violin or whatever it is, I will be happy. I yeah. don't need them to be on the front page of some. Agreed. 
I think most parents have exactly the same aspiration for their kids when it comes down to it. And I think most CEOs and entrepreneurs should have the same aspiration for their company. Mm. That success is that your company can go out into the world and thrive without you. That doesn't happen overnight. Right. For parents, it takes 20 years, right? It may take you that long in a business, but that's that's the aspiration I think entrepreneurs should have is that regardless of how big or small your company is, if it can thrive without you, you've given life to the world. You've brought something into the world that doesn't depend on you. And, and, and I think that will give entrepreneurs an enormous degree of satisfaction, just like it does parents. Yeah. To see your kid go off and do something without you is just incredibly rewarding, right? Yeah. And I think for entrepreneurs, you will find that incredibly rewarding to see somebody else make a sale, somebody else serve a customer just as well, even better than you would have done. I mean, that's a glorious feeling. And so practically, some of the business models or systems I've seen that are really important is to take the view that you've got to create standard operating procedures. Standard operating procedures is not a new term for folks, right? But it's basically instructions for how you would want something done in your company uh, when you're not there effectively, right? Like, what are the steps that that people need to take? I remember I interviewed a woman named Jody Cook. Jody built a great little social media company based in the UK. And and she first got an offer to sell to, to sell her company. I think it was, if my memory serves, is around four or five times uh, profit, but they wanted her to stay for a three-year earnout, right? And earnout is where you get some of your money up front, but then you got to take some of the money at risk in the future if you hit certain goals. And Jody's like, I don't want anything to do with the earnout, right? Like if I get to sell my business, I want cash up front, 100%. Right. And and so she said, okay, the only way I'm going to do that is if I create standard operating procedures, my employees can follow when I'm not around. And so she did that. And ultimately, she sold her company. I think it was eight times EBITDA, like a great successful exit for a professional Very services nice. company. Yeah. 100% cash in closing she left two weeks later. That's unheard of for a professional services company. But she managed to do it in part because she created these standard operating procedures. So it's... it's um, Look... Uh, you know, you don't have to want to sell to have standard operating procedures, right? right. You have to want your company to grow beyond your involvement. And I think that can be just a really good best practice to focus on. Yeah, I love that. Because I think that is extremely important to not being, well, one, business owners ultimately. And of course, yes, you want to be in the business and we love being important and you know, people wanting us and needing us. But at the end of the day, you want to get to a point where you can fire yourself out of the company and it's still not only operating, but it is thriving without you. And that's when you know, I think, right, you built a real business, which is ultimately, you know, at least what many entrepreneurs and business owners tell themselves is the reason why they get into business for in the first place, right, is to create this vehicle that makes impact, makes money, brings value to the world, you know, to your employees, to your community, whatever, you know, your, your space is, and ultimately allows you to go off and do whatever the heck you want to do when you want to do it with who you want to do it with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, we 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 did some research at Value Builder recently, and we asked business owners what's their definition of wealthy, and we gave them three choices. So we locked them into three potential choices. So we didn't do it open ended. We said choice number one is someone with ten million dollars of investable asset. Option number two is someone who has enough money to pay their lifestyle expenses for the rest of their life. Option number three is someone who has enough money to do whatever they want whenever they want to. 15% said it was 10 million. Another 30% said it was enough money to cover your lifestyle uh, for the rest. The, the rest of folks, like 55%, said it was enough money to do whatever I want, whenever I want to. And that's freedom, right? It's FU money. It's, it's basically financial independence. I'm reminded, uh, and here's the thing. I think what we do as entrepreneurs is we often ride it over the top, meaning we build businesses that are successful enough to create that amount of liquid wealth, to have that amount of freedom, yet we refuse to sell it. And for a lot of people listening to this, if you look back at your own life and you say, how much of, how much of my net worth is tied up in my business? When you first started, it was probably negligible, right? Yeah, right. You and right now, it's probably a big proportion of your net worth if you've been at it for a while. And every day you hold on to all those shares in your company, even though on paper it might be a lot of wealth, you're basically at the poker table going all in every day, right? 
And I interviewed, have you ever had Rand Fishkin on the show? I have not. Okay. So Rand, uh, you should have him. He's a great guest. He's, he wrote a great book called Lost and Founder. Okay. It's, it's a great book. But anyways, Rand uh, built a business called SEO Moz. They were in the SEO space. It's a great little software product, built it up to 5 million revenue. And he got a call from Brian Halligan, the co-founder of HubSpot. And they said, look, we, you know, we're, we don't have any SEO solution. We want to buy your company. And he offered him five times top line revenue. So like 25 million bucks. And Rand says, well, you know, I, I appreciate the offer, but you know, we're on our way. We're at five now, but we think we'll be at 10 this time next year. And I've heard SaaS companies like mine should trade around four times revenue. So I want 40. It's for a $5 million company. And Brian Halligan says, I can't pay you 40 for a $5 million company. And they, they part ways. And instead, Rand says, okay, well, he raised a bunch of venture capital. The, the VCs encouraged him to get in a bunch of different product lines. You know the rest of the story, right? The product lines started to fail. The company started to bleed cash. Rand was actually removed as the CEO of the company. Wow. And the VCs brought in new management. And I interviewed Rand after the fact, and I said, "Well, at least you've all you've got all the Moz stock. I mean, even though you're not running the company, you I mean you're still going to have a huge exit one day." And he said, "No, probably not." I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, "The way the VCs invested, they use preferred shares, and because of the length of time they've held, they're going to get a preferred return, which is likely going to wash me out of any equity whatsoever. In other words, mine will go to zero." And I said, "But Rand, like." What would that offer from HubSpot be worth today based on like what's happened to HubSpot stock in the last five years? He said it would probably be worth close to $200 million. Because the deal was that Rand was being offered was a mixture of cash and stock in HubSpot. And so, I mean, that's a very dramatic example of this concept of riding it over the top. And as entrepreneurs, we're super optimistic, right? Like we right. think tomorrow's always going to be better than today. It's going to be Right. And and so and that's natural. That's what makes us great at what we do, frankly. Yeah. But it also makes us susceptible to rotting it over the top. And I would just encourage people listening just to do the math and say, okay, you know, if if I started this company, my goal was to build enough wealth to do whatever I want whenever I want to. And if I sold my company after paying taxes and commissions, also, I would have that. Why am I continuing? Yeah. Now you may have other reasons to continue. You may you may want to. There may be all kinds of altruistic reasons you want to build your business larger than it is today. That's cool and totally understand. But I think it's worth a quiet moment over a you know glass of wine or whatever your your thing is to just reflect on: Am I willing to continue to risk what I built, financial freedom, effectively, if I liquidate it for something that maybe I don't necessarily want? And it's a good, uh, that's a good question. Right. Because I think oftentimes, if people really took the time to get clear on that answer, their actions or decisions may be a lot different than what by default, right? Our programming just keeps us, you know, through habit or through traction moving in one particular direction. That may not be aligned with your North Star that you initially started on the journey for in the first place. So I think it's a really great, important question to be asking because oftentimes I'm just a big believer in clarity and and awareness and consistently staying in proximity to the stuff that you say matters to you, whether it's your core values, whether it's your goals, whether it's your marriage, your health, you know, where wherever you're you you say you're you're moving and going towards auditing those decisions or at least being aware enough to know when you're off track or you're you know in the zone and you're in congruence with doing those things, it makes a big difference. Um, Question for you in terms of all the businesses that you see to give a little bit more context to people around the importance of patience and and, and, and diligence and grit, you know, and perseverance over an extended period of time. You know, I'm just a big believer that a lot of small things eventually turn into when you look up and look in the rear view mirror, something really big. Um, So, what is the overall kind of average timeline you see for these, you know, successful businesses? How long does it take for them to get there so people can really understand, at least contextually, maybe how long they should be thinking about investing time, energy, resources into building something if they want it to be really successful? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is this is obviously an unanswerable question in the context of there, there's there's all right. sorts of outlier totally. examples of you know WhatsApp gets acquired three years after its founding or something like that. For some yeah, maybe maybe not necessarily the unicorns, but let's let's say that yeah. the, the average you know big chunk of businesses that we might see midsize, you know, yeah, right. It's it's kind of that crockpot versus microwave type of mindset, <laughs> right? I love that. I, you know, anecdotally, I think, you know, and when I say anecdotally, I've done something like 350 episodes of Built to Sell Radio. So I've interviewed lots of entrepreneurs. What I hear, and again, this is just anecdotal, is that there's something somewhat uh, transformative about a 10-year anniversary of a company. Again, I don't. I don't know what the ten-year mark means. Whether it's there's, you know, it's, they talk about a marriage. You've got a seven-year itch. I don't know if that's if that's a real thing. Maybe it's the ten-year itch enough for a business owner. Yeah. Again, I don't know what it is, but I I think there's something about about that. I think there's also this 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 point where a business reaches, you know. For some people, it's 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 a million dollars in value. Some people, it's five million. Some people, 10, 20, whatever. But the entrepreneur wakes up one day and says, oh my gosh, I'm all in and I, I need to diversify, right? And so that happens. The, the, that's more likely to happen the longer the, the, the longer the business owner has, has held the company and the older the owner gets. So it's unlikely that a 30-year-old looks up and says, oh, I'm, I need to diversify. Like that's not the way 30-year-olds think, which is cool. But when you're 50, 55, 60... And you realize, oh my gosh, eighty percent of my net worth is in this is in this privately held business. That's not yep. that's not good. Right. And so I think there's something, and I think there's also a tie between that and, and and the realization that for a lot of people, I mean, you know the math better than I I do. You know, at you know at a five million dollars of investable assets, that should be able to throw off a couple hundred grand in income every year, like. Do you need any more than that? For, like, maybe you do. Maybe you have a really high burn rate. Depends on how, how you're living. Yeah, some people, I'm pretty simple. So I, that, that would work yeah. fine for me. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, there's a point at which you don't really need much more. And I think yeah. a lot of people reach that at whatever, 5 million, 10 million. And they're like, I'm good. Like I don't. I don't need to keep betting the ranch here. Yep. Uh, so I. I don't know that it's. A, I can give you a specific answer of the gestation period. Again, in Stephanie's Breedlove's case, it took her 25 years. Yeah. And she stuck with it for 25 years, and I think that's admirable. Uh, I mean, that that's a little bit longer than I would. I'm used to seeing, but there's still yeah. like a 10 year itch. You know, it's funny because uh, pretty much all the amazing entrepreneurs, business owners, wealth builders. Um, you know, we're, I don't know, I think we're 600 plus episodes in on the millionaire mindsets wow. now. And, um, it's usually been in that 10 year Interesting, right? ballpark. Yeah. Of where yeah. either your wealth starts to, you know, smart investment decisions over time, start to compound and really, you know, hockey stick in that eight to 12 year timeline. Um, and of course there's always outliers and there's people that, you know, hit, you know, the right, uh, you know, industry or at the right time sure. or whatever yeah. it may be. But for the most part, on average, what I've found is, you know, it, it's been in that eight to 10, 11 year time frame. Um, and I think it's, well, I'm curious on your thoughts around what kind of mentality and mindset should someone have in terms of like, I'm going to commit to this for X period of time, or is it I'm going to commit to X milestones being hit? What are your thoughts around the overall mentality someone should have when they're committing to building their business and you know what kind of fortitude you're going to need to have you know as you go through and you know navigate the peaks and valleys that we all know business owners will no doubt about it experience yeah, yeah. at some point in time. Yeah, look I mean I, I wish I had a good answer. I don't. I admittedly I don't have a great response. I think um you know, one of the things that you have to, or I try to think about is, is, is I, is, am I moving forward, even if it's taking me longer than I hoped or wanted it to, uh, am I moving forward? I'm, I'm a big goal guy. Like I, I, I you know, uh, I decided for, you know, you know, when I was 20, uh, like I watched the Ironman uh, triathlon on TV. I'm like, I bet my roommate at university, like I could do that in a year. And he's like, there's no way you could do that in a year. If you looked at yourself. <laughs> 
I'm like, I bet you I could. So I bet him and like, I like very specific goal, you know, 112 miles, whatever. And sure enough, nine months later, I, I did the Ironman, which is, I'm very proud of that. And at the same time, those very binary goals take a mental toll, right? Like when it's specific, you know, you've heard of smart goals, right? It's like, I want to sell my business, but I think that's great. And those are important to have yet we can also fall victim of not enjoying any of the journey itself. And so I think there's probably a happy medium there where you've got very smart goals. So they're time-based, they're specific, et cetera, et cetera. But you also take time to reflect on like the journey itself and the little wins along the way and know that even if you don't hit the big goal, you probably learn a tremendous amount about yourself along the way. Um, and as long as you're kind of moving forward and still sort of enjoying that process as best you can, like I, I would stick with it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, when it becomes like, I, I've got to hit this goal no matter what. And, you know, I, I, I kind of worry a little bit that that is the goal really worth the, the expense. Well, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious uh, on your take around when is it time to throw in the towel? When is it time to pivot? And, and adapt, you know, when is it time to course correct? Um, cause that's oftentimes a question, right? People, there's the, you're three inches from gold mentality, keep going, keep going. Right. And oftentimes, you know, the, the mental fortitude and the confidence that comes from pushing through that turmoil and those challenges often is worthwhile, but then there's right people that are, you know, chipping away and there's nothing there. And yeah. so how do you, how do you, you know, balance that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I think we make the mistake sometimes of trying to of of looking at these these stories, and I've even made the mistake today of of sharing all these outlandish, crazy stories, you know, huge amounts of money at the table, and I think we we can fall victim to well, I want to create the next Facebook, the next Tesla, whatever, the next Amazon, and and we kind of spin our wheels trying to raise money, trying to get the business plans created, and and trying to like you know. Whereas I think actually, in many cases, we really want to try to create some initial wealth that allows you to play a different game. Like if you are able to cut lawns, uh, you know, do something manual, but do it on your own terms and get the tax benefits of basically running a company, you'd be surprised how quickly you can actually accumulate a fair amount of wealth if you stay fairly lean in a process, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do this, right? They're in they're in blue collar industries, businesses that they're just they're ge- generating a lot of cash, a lot of wealth, right? That's a great that's a great goal and a short term goal. It's probably going to burn you out after a period of time where you're looking for a new game to play, where physical labor is not necessarily the, the what the currency play here. But if you built enough wealth, you can then go play another game, right? You could play the game of investor, right? So you can then get into real estate, like uh, as, as you have, for example, and, and other types of business models that require investment. So I think it depends a little bit on your life stage, right? Like, so in the early days, if I was in my 20s or advising someone in my 20s, I tell them, forget about Silicon Valley, uh, get a blue collar business going, which is dead easy to build. And oftentimes you just compete based on better customer service and willingness to work harder than the next guy. And if you're that guy or gal, you could create a successful business in just about any blue collar industry. Uh, with, you know, I, I don't want to diminish the, 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 the importance of training and learning, but effectively it comes down to, can I serve the customers well? Yeah. And am I willing to do the work? You build up some wealth. And by the time you're 30, 35, 40, you've got a nest egg that you can then go play in a different sandbox. You might invest in other businesses. You might start another business that has a higher capital need, but could grow much more quickly and, and get you onto a totally other plane of wealth building. Yeah. Uh, but don't try to skip the first step. Like yeah. s- start, you know, I, yeah. I don't know if we were aligned on that, but no, I, I we are. Cause um, you know, I can, I can appreciate, you know, that perspective being relates a lot to me and, and, and my journey to be completely frank with you in terms of, you know, when you, when you just get in there, it's, Hey, I don't know what I don't know, but I'm willing to figure it out by rolling up my sleeves, working my ass off, showing up, you know, outperforming and, you know, I guess 
under-promising and over-delivering over and over and over until you kind of earn a little bit of credibility and and have a little bit of a track record. Um, And so I think that's something that I, when I talk to people and they say, well, what, what was the one thing you would tell yourself going back to when you first started? And I said, honestly, the I've never been the smartest, never been the fastest, never been, you know, the strongest person. I've just been dumb enough to bet on myself every day and smart enough to take action on what goals I think I needed to. And, you know, right. Like, I don't think you had, but then over time, right. You start to then sharpen your ax and put different tools on your tool belt and get capital relationships and learn this skill set and how to manage people and how to review a PL and a balance sheet. And right. It starts dots, more data points get up on the board and you start connecting dots. And all of a sudden there's a little bit more of a picture there. Um, and then you start playing, you know, whether it's wealth or, or business or leadership at a little bit of a, a different level. Right. And, and, um, and so I'm curious as you've had those experiences over your journey, you know, what did your diversification look like in terms of, okay, sold my business, you know, and you're doing a lot of different things now, you know, what, um, what do you invest your time and your money in and why? Yeah, I mean it's 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 all this you know, kind of standard stuff. Uh, it's pretty diversified, you know, between uh, you know some real estate stuff, public company stocks, some limited partnership stuff, some private equity stuff, uh, a little bit of crypto, not a lot of crypto, uh, but uh, and then of course you know I, I have an operating company, Value Builder, which is you know a significant share as well so it's just it's not that sexy to be honest it's pretty diversified you know obviously one sector goes up it's the ideal yep. is 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 to be hedged on the other side so it's pretty diversified that way um and and that helps me sleep at night frankly it's funny that you say that cuz um, most people i talk to say the same thing it's not that sexy oh really and and i will and i always tell people that ask about you know wealth building i'm like it's not really sexy until what it can do for you is actually sexy right the lifestyle the freedom the impact all of those other things but it's really just these small diligent you know uh actions or choices made over an extended period of time until you look up and you're like oh actually that's kind of sexy you know the way the way but it it doesn't maybe feel that way to to you or to us you know, because it's just disciplined actions that align with whatever your goals are. And so uh, I love that you said that, you know, with the landscape um, and how things have changed since COVID, you know, I just kind of wanted to wrap things up in terms of some of the opportunities or challenges you see for businesses in the landscape post COVID and, Mm -hmm. you know, where things are moving and what people might, you know, be paying attention to, or maybe what trends you're paying attention to. Yeah, the biggest one is is owners want to sell, and, and and so you know for legacy business owners, I'm talking about business owners that went through the 2008 2009 financial crisis, the whatever GFCs, some people in Europe call it, um, and then COVID, like those people are done, like they are done like dinner. They're you know for some of them they have had a come to Jesus moment where they're like I had no idea I this risk even existed, like some pandemic was going to throw yeah, me off right. course. And they, if they've if they've managed to muddle through, in many cases, their businesses are worth less than they were in 2019. But they're like, I am done. I'm out. I'll take whatever I can get for this company. Others have have gone through more uh, positively, but but are still. I'll give you I'll give you an example because I just did an interview with with him yesterday, uh, earlier this week actually. Robert Glazer's his name built Acceleration Partners Partner Marketing, 28 million dollars in revenue, built it up from scratch, zero. Self-funded it his entire journey, never took outside money. And he put a $2 million line of credit on his home, his family home, in order to continue to build this company. So built it up, built it up, built it up. And he was at $28 million in revenue. So he had 200 employees. His payroll was over a million dollars a month. And the pandemic hits. All of the clients he's working with, these blue chip marketers, these advertisers are like, put everything on hold. We have no idea what, what's going to happen. And the months start ticking by month one, month two, and he's got a million dollar a month payroll. And on paper, he's got a $28 million business that should be worth a truckload. But in reality, he's got a very hungry workforce that is, you know, with their hands out saying, I need my paycheck today, a million to the tune of a million dollars a month. 
And he was successful in, in shouldering that crisis, built the business back up, ultimately uh, uh, was scarred by the process and decided it was time to sell and took on an outside uh, private equity group, recapitalized the company, and, and he's continued to be a shareholder and, and CEO of the company, but as a minority shareholder. And I asked him like what that was like for him. And he said, I realized that I couldn't afford to own my company anymore. I wow. couldn't afford to own my company anymore, which is kind of a thought-provoking idea. But the idea has been percolating through a lot of entrepreneurs' minds. And so that's both a, uh, a kind of a cautionary tale, I think, for folks who are maybe uh, in business now that are just kind of mindlessly going through inertia, kind of building to the next level. It's also an opportunity for your listeners, right? So there's a whole swath of business owners that are going to be looking to sell. And while I don't want to ever suggest you, you know, you add, I don't want to advocate that you're going to be able to uh, buy businesses for pennies on the dollar because because that that's not what I want to say. But but you will find a lot of really good businesses that have gone through a couple of years of hardship that are have a tremendous amount of value underneath what may not be patently obvious when you look at their profit and loss statement. Absolutely. I mean, I bought two laundromats from an exact you know type of seller where. Um, like you said, you never want to, you know, root for somebody having to sell out of their mm-hmm. life's work at for for pennies on the dollar, right? I, I always say is when it becomes a win-win when someone's motivation meets what you're willing to pay. And yeah. if if they feel good about it and you feel good about it, right? Whether it's at market value, whether it's discount, whether you're overpaying for it, that's a win-win. Their motivation and what they needed meets what you're willing to pay. That seems like an, an opportunity that you know becomes a win-win, but there is a lot of, in my opinion, opportunistic buys now, and most likely going to be moving out of the pandemic. Where, like you said, a lot of boomers, a lot of people that have you know tried to weather the storm, have been through some yeah. of these you know turbulent times, are going to be looking you know to sunset and and get out of it, right? And that creates opportunity for the young, hungry, either you know investor or business owner that wants to do the sweat equity themselves, or for a lot of smart money to come in and look at acquiring and bringing a lot of these opportunities into the fold of whatever their existing, you know, infrastructure and resources look like, knowing that they can capture and bring some value into those organizations, you know, post seller, right? Yeah, yeah, well said. I mean, in your in a dry cleaner's case, do you like what was their motivation? Like, what triggered them to want to sell? Do you, yeah, she she um so the she had five laundromats, and essentially two of them were. Uh, these were her two best ones that she was worried about the, you know, losing the most value out of these two. And mm-hmm. so she wanted to kind of lock in that value and and start divesting and pulling some chips off the table for her retirement. She was in her late fifties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty common too. The two statistically, uh, we've done a bunch of research on this, the two statistically uh, most likely reasons business owners decide to sell. Number one is a, unsolicited offer to buy your business. So you get approached effectively. Number two is a health scare. Now, we don't know what this 55-year-old woman was going through on the health perspective, but you may, if you unpacked it, you may hear that there was something, either her or someone in her family who had some sort of health event. And what I would have entrepreneurs reflect on for a moment is in both of those cases, you get an unsolicited offer or you have a health event in both of those cases, you're on your back foot. You're reacting to something, right? You're reacting to an acquisition offer. You're reacting to a health event. And all of a sudden, you're not prepared. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in building to sell from the get-go. You know, it gives you the ultimate poker hand in the game of life, right? Like yeah, you, right. you have the royal flush. If you've got a business that can thrive without you, that could be sold at a moment's notice. Like you're proactive and you've got an asset you're building. If if you're having to kind of react to the last minute saying, oh man, we haven't really been thinking about this. I got to get my books in order. Like that's going to just be a recipe for getting taken advantage of. Yeah. Whereas if even chips on the, the beginning, table. Yeah. Yeah. If you kind of build the cell from the beginning, um, you're in the catbird seat. You can you can swat away acquisition offers all day long, knowing that you're in control, right? You can decide. Well, John, I've had an absolute pleasure 
I got tons of notes here, brother, learning and chatting with you, man. And I, I know that, you know, we really only scratched the surface. You've got so much amazing content, great books, you know, a lot of uh, listeners on your podcast. So for those that want to know more about you, want to follow more of the content that you're sharing and, you know, they want to build a business to, to, to sell, where is the best place for them to follow and, you know, uh, learn from you? Yeah, best place is builttosell.com. There's a bunch of ebooks and resources and checklists, and you can get back episodes of the podcast. People like Rand Fishkin and Stephanie Breedlove. It's all yeah, just builttosell.com. Awesome, man. Well, we will include all of those links and resources in the show notes on uh, John Warlow's episode. Brother, pleasure having you. And uh, we'll hope to talk with you again soon. Thanks, Maddie. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation, a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you want to support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info and how you can connect with us live in person, all kinds of great valuable tools you can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, I always want to know, who do you guys want to hear me interview next? Let me know. Shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friend. <laughs>